July 1977, Central Ohio. A Ford F-Series truck pulls off the road and onto a large patch of undeveloped land. Ohio State official Jim Clark turns off the ignition and steps out of the driver's door. The passenger door is open, and four Japanese businessmen in suits get out. They shield their eyes from the bright sun as they look out over the flat, grassy landscape. Clark gives them a moment to take it all in, and then starts his sales pitch. So what we got here is a vacant lot that covers 214 acres and has the main highway running right by it. State's Transportation Research Center is about 10 minutes drive away, so you got all your vehicle testing needs right on your own doorstep. One of the Japanese businessmen pulls a notebook from his suit pocket. The pages flutter in the wind as he scribbles down notes. Clark continues his pitch. As you gentlemen can see, the land here is almost as flat as a pancake, too. That's what you wanted, right? Now, see that town right over there? That's Marysville. A lot of hard-working folk live there, and they need and want jobs, so you got your labor force, too. The businessman making notes looks up. Uh, what about railroad links? Clark points to the west. You can't really see it from here, but there's a railroad track less than a half a mile away. Been out of use for some time, but it could be restored. So, what do you think? We getting warm? The Japanese businessmen look at each other and nod. They've just found the ideal site for Honda's new motorcycle factory. But the motorbikes are just the warm-up act. Honda's got way bigger plans for this space. Americans are clambering to buy Honda Civics and Accords, but Japanese automakers worry that very success might royal Detroit, which just can't seem to find its footing. Honda does not want to humiliate Detroit. America buys half of Honda's cars, and Honda fears that if Detroit keeps fumbling the ball, Congress will impose tariffs, quotas, and other measures to stall Japanese auto imports. But Honda's got a plan to dodge that potential roadblock. It'll open the first Japanese automobile plant on U.S. soil. It's a shrewd move. Toyota's going to respond with a shrewd plan of its own. It's going to forge a marriage of convenience with America's car giants. But for its plan to work, Toyota must first convince Detroit that it's friend, not foe. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15, discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Now, since you're a podcast listener, I'm sure you know all about how audio just does something to the imagination. So I'm really excited to tell you about how Audible's brand new exclusive thrillers are brought to life with that kind of captivating sound design, the eerie soundscapes and dynamic performances. There's one that caught my eye. I should say it caught my ear. It's an Audible original called Sleeping Dogs Lie by Samantha Downey. It details the aftermath of a local businessman's murder in Marin County, California, a once sleepy suburb now part of the bustling Silicon Valley area. And as an Audible member, well, you get to keep one title a month from their entire catalog, including bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible now, free, for 30 days. Head on over to audible.com slash BW or text BW to 500-500. That's audible.com slash BW. 
or text BW to 500-500 and try out Audible free for 30 days. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. On the last episode, Toyota hooked young America with low-priced and reliable cars. Honda cleaned up its emissions, and two global oil shocks crushed demand for the big cars of Detroit. But with America's car industry in trouble, Japan's automakers fear a political backlash is about to send their sales into reverse. This is Episode 3, Breaking Ground. June 1980. Toyota City, Japan. In his office, Aiji Toyota stands up and buttons his pinstripe jacket over his paunch. These days, the 66-year-old Toyota chairman feels like the last link with the past. He was a young graduate when his cousin, Kiichiro, hired him to study automobile design. Now, Aiji's got gray hair and liver spots, and Toyota is the third largest automaker in the world, with annual sales of $13 billion. Yet, in many ways, Toyota remains a provincial family concern. It exports its vehicles worldwide, but they're all made here, in the city that bears its name. But today, AEG will take a first cautious step towards changing that. The door opens and in walks a tall American with receding hair. He's Donald Peterson, the chairman of the Ford Motor Company. Ford is the world's number two car maker, but it's bleeding out. It loses $4 million every day. The two automobile chiefs sit. Donald, I'm glad you're interested in my proposal. A joint venture could benefit us both. It's definitely an intriguing idea. So how would it work? We'd provide a design for a compact car that would be assembled at a Ford plant in America. We would oversee production. The cars would be sold at Ford dealerships. Peterson sees the value in this arrangement. Ford needs a replacement for its own compact, the Pinto. This could be a quick and low-cost solution. Peterson's also keen to get a look under the hood and learn how Toyota makes reliable small cars with fewer people than Ford. So will the cars have Ford nameplates? Yes. Our goal is to learn how to apply our production system in America without the risk involved in building our own plant. But... There's another unspoken reason for Toyota to use its own production system. The reputation of American-made cars is now so poor that Toyota fears any vehicle made in the U.S. will be substandard. So Aiji doesn't want to risk having Toyota's brand undermined by shoddy workmanship. Peterson leans back into his seat. I like the sound of this. Let's get our negotiators together. Wonderful, but I do have a request. May we announce that we're in talks? Peterson's not surprised. Encouraged by Ford and the rest of the U.S. motor industry, America's legislators are demanding action to protect Detroit from Japanese competition. Toyota clearly hopes to smooth the waters by casting itself as an ally of America's car makers. But after the near death of Chrysler, Peterson doubts that plan will work. Yeah, sure. You can tell the world we're talking. 
As Peterson expected, the political pressure remains intense. In the months that follow, the U.S. and Japanese governments butt heads over the auto industry. Eventually, U.S. threats of trade barriers caused Japan to back down. In May 1981, Japan agrees to limit its passenger car exports to 1.7 million vehicles a year. That's 100,000 fewer autos than in 1980. However, Toyota's partnership with Ford provokes Arab governments that have blacklisted Ford for selling cars to Israel. And since Saudi Arabia is Toyota's biggest export market after the U.S., that threat puts the Japanese carmaker on edge. In the end, the talks with Ford go nowhere. Ford rejects Toyota's compact car design. They explore bringing Toyota's Town Ace minivan to America, but Ford's focus groups find U.S. consumers hate it. So, in July 1981, Ford and Toyota part ways. For Toyota, it's a disaster. The new cap on Japanese auto exports means Toyota can't expand its passenger car sales in America. And while Toyota wasted a year flirting with Ford, Honda's been building a car plant in Ohio, so it's unconcerned with import barriers. And Honda's already plotting another bold move. 1982, Honda's U.S. head office, Torrance, California. In the cafeteria, American Honda's top three executives are puzzling over the latest strategic plan sent from Japan. Senior Vice President Tom Elliott stares at the document in disbelief. It's ludicrous, that's what it is. His colleagues nod. Their bosses in Japan want them to get ready to sell a luxury Honda sedan starting in 1986. It'll have a V6 engine and cost around $20,000. That's more than twice the price of an Accord. It would also put Honda into direct competition with Cadillac and Mercedes-Benz. Executive Vice President Cliff Schmelin leafs through the strategy document. Hey, did you read this paragraph? They also want to launch a supercar in 1988. Elliot rolls his eyes. Oh, yeah, sure. We'll just, you know, beat Ferrari, too. Honda's U.S. President, Yoshihide Munekani, puts his sandwich down. But the reasoning is sound. Our first customers are reaching middle age. Many of them will want bigger, more luxurious cars, but we have nothing to offer them. So they'll go buy BMWs or Lincolns instead. This strategy would let them stick with Honda. Schmillen looks doubtful. Honda's brand won't stretch that far. It's strong, but it says value, not luxury. It lacks the cachet needed to compete with Mercedes or Audi. Americans don't associate Japanese cars with luxury. Elliot interjects. Agreed. Also, our dealerships can't handle it. I mean, can you imagine a showroom that sells a luxury sedan and a Civic side-by-side? Come on. For this to work, we'd need a new brand and a completely separate dealer network. The three executives stop and look at each other. They've just stumbled on the answer. Create the first luxury Japanese car brand and play down the Honda connection. And as the executive team prepares to go upscale, over in Ohio, Honda's about to deliver another first. 8.30 a.m., November 2nd, 1982, Marysville, Ohio. In Honda's new $250 million car plant, a small group of executives watch as a slate gray Accord glides towards the end of the assembly line. Its license plate reads 
USA 001. It's the first Japanese car to be built on U.S. soil. Honda President Kiyoshi Kawashima smiles approvingly as the car rolls off the line. He flew in from Japan to be here, but there's no TV crews, no state dignitaries, no ribbon to cut, no speeches to give. There's just the quiet joy of creation, of seeing the company's plan to build cars in America finally come to pass. But there's also the satisfaction of knowing this plant gives Honda an edge over Toyota. Toyota's U.S. sales are now constrained by import quotas. Yesterday, that was true of Honda, too. But now, it's got a plant that will soon be making 150,000 Accords every year, all free of trade barriers. And that gives Honda a chance to overtake Toyota. But Toyota's also about to make its first move into U.S. manufacturing. February 1983, Fremont, California. Two limousines pull into the empty lot of General Motors' enormous automobile factory. Once upon a time, 5,000 people worked here, assembling more than 1,000 vehicles every day. But now, it's silent and deserted. General Motors' CEO Roger Smith steps out of the first limousine. He pauses to look at the factory he mothballed last year. As the breeze from San Francisco Bay sends a plastic bag looping through the air, Smith turns to the man who's just gotten out of the other limousine, Toyota chairman Aiji Toyota. Shall we? Aiji nods and follows Smith towards the main entrance. In a couple of hours, the media will descend on this place to watch them sign the deal creating a new joint venture called NUMI. General Motors approached Toyota about a joint venture soon after the Japanese automaker's talks with Ford collapsed. Now, after 18 months of grueling negotiations, they've finally reached an agreement. Under the terms, Toyota will use this plant to manufacture a North American version of its Japan-only subcompact, the Sprinter. GM will then sell that car nationwide as the Chevrolet Nova. Both sides are upbeat about the deal. GM will finally get a profitable small car to sell and a chance to learn the secrets of Japanese car manufacturing. Toyota will get to see if its production system works with American employees without putting its own brand at risk. The two men enter the plant. Its emptiness is eerie. Machines sit still and silent. Every footstep echoes through its vast interior. Aiji peers at one of the machines and shakes his head. Most of the equipment here belongs in a junkyard, and it's now Toyota's job to replace it. But it also needs a workforce. Smith turns to Aiji. Do you have a recruitment plan yet? We intend to rehire the people you laid off. Smith almost laughs, but then he sees the serious look on Aiji's face. <laughs> You're serious? Listen, I... Uh... You don't want those people back. This place was the worst plant in all of GM. Unions and managers at each other's throats, day and night, walkouts, people getting drunk on the job, sky-high absenteeism. We had cars coming off the line with engines back to front, missing steering wheels and empty Coke bottles inside the doors. Roger, I appreciate the advice, but I believe that under Toyota's system, they will become good workers, like our people in Japan. Well, it's your place to run now, but don't say I didn't warn you. 
AEG's staking a lot on his belief that Toyota can tame the feral workforce that once roamed this factory. This plant is Toyota's first critical step towards making automobiles in America. And if the company gets this wrong, Honda's head start in U.S. manufacturing could turn into an almost unbeatable lead. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. June 1984, Toyota City, Japan. John takes a bolt from the tray as the assembly line carries another half-built Corolla towards him. The 37-year-old Californian threads the bolt into position, takes his impact wrench and screws it into place. Yohei, the young Japanese worker showing David the ropes, smiles. Seven seconds. It's better, but you must be faster still. Four seconds, not seven. John redoubles his efforts. He's one of 25 former GM workers brought here by Toyota for training ahead of the reopening of the factory in Fremont, California. And he's determined to prove that whatever the Japanese can do, he can do too. He removes another bolt from the tray and screws it in. Yohei grins. Six seconds. John snatches another bolt and applies the impact wrench. But in his rush, he's inserted the bolt at the wrong angle and misthreaded it. <clears throat> Damn it. Yohei peers over. Oh, that's no good. You know what to do. John's eyes drift towards the nylon cord dangling from above their heads. It's the cord that'll stop the assembly line. Even looking at it makes him feel uneasy. At GM, stopping the line was the ultimate sin. An instant pink slip. Getting cars out the door trumped everything. Defects were to be fixed later, if at all. But that is not the Toyota way. John's hesitation alarms Yohei. John, you've seen a defect. Pull the cord. David reaches up, grips the cord, and pulls. On a display board above them, a light goes on to alert the supervisors to the problem and its location. Within seconds, a supervisor appears. He checks the misaligned bolt and pulls the cord again to halt the line. John can't believe his eyes. They've stopped the whole line for a single bolt. Yohei looks at John. John, everyone's now waiting for you to fix this. John leaps into action. He removes the offending bolt, puts in a new one, and tightens it into place. Then he pulls the cord to give the all clear. As the line restarts, John feels something unfamiliar stir within him. A long-lost emotion he hasn't felt in years. A feeling stamped out by years spent on the GM production line. At first, he's not sure what that feeling is, but then it clicks. It's pride, the pride that comes from doing the job right instead of shoving any old heap of junk out the door. For all the former GM workers brought back to the Fremont plant, Toyota's methods are a revelation. Before, 
Supervisors yelled at them for falling behind. Now, they offer help. Instead of doing the same repetitive task day in, day out, they rotate tasks every few hours to alleviate the boredom. And when a problem occurs, they're asked how to stop it from happening again, and their ideas get acted on immediately. In December 1984, the Fremont plant restarts production. It used to be GM's most dysfunctional outpost. Now, it makes Chevrolet Novas with defect rates low enough to rival Toyota's factories in Japan. Toyota's proved its point. The American car worker was never the problem. It was American management. But that lesson is lost on GM. Most of its executives and workers see no reason to change. The way they see it, GM is the world's biggest car maker and therefore it must also be the best. But while GM shuts its eyes and ears, Toyota's gained the confidence it needs to open its first U.S. plant. And not a moment too soon. Because while it's been doing practice runs, Honda's been making the most of its early push into American manufacturing. Since it opened its Ohio car plant in 1982, Honda's sales curve's been rising fast. Back then, it sold 365,000 cars a year in America. Now, in 1985, it sells more than 550,000. Demand is so hot that Honda dealerships can slap $2,000 premiums on the sticker price and still sell out. And its luxury car brand is about to hit the market. The automotive world knew it would come. It was only a matter of time. Acura, a new dimension in performance automobiles from a new division of American Honda. The Acura Legend V6 Luxury Touring Sedan. The American and European auto industry greets Acura's arrival with skepticism and fear. Some doubt Honda can compete in the luxury market. Others fear Honda will defy expectations yet again and pave the way for other Japanese companies to enter the category. The first Acura showrooms open in March 1986, and they're soon full of yuppies lusting over the legend and its smaller, sportier sidekick, the Integra. And they don't disappoint. The legend's got everything 80s luxury car buyers crave, from electric windows and pure wool upholstery to a cassette stereo with a digital equalizer. And below the refined family sedan exterior lurks a 151-horsepower V6 with fuel injection that's just waiting to let rip. It also comes with a $20,000 price tag, making it half the price of a Mercedes E-Class and 30% cheaper than a BMW 5 Series. By the end of 1986, Honda's proved that plenty of people will buy luxury Japanese cars. It sells 52,000 Acuras that year, enough for Honda to overtake Toyota in America. By the end of 1986, Honda has sold 690,000 passenger cars, putting it comfortably ahead of Toyota's 640,000. And it's no blip. In 1987, Acura's sales doubled, helping Honda's sales climb to nearly 740,000 cars. Meanwhile, Toyota slips back after the strong yen forces it to increase prices. 
Honda's risk-taking is paying off. It's zooming ahead of the ever-cautious Toyota. But just as in the fairy tale, Toyota knows it was the tortoise, not the hare, that won the race. And slow as it may seem, Toyota is coming for Honda. Summer 1988, Holbrook, New Mexico. Ichiro Suzuki releases the brake pedal and lets his car slowly roll out of the McDonald's drive-thru. He slurps his vanilla milkshake as he steers towards the road. He normally drinks water or weak tea, but ever since he began this long drive across America, he's been hooked on McDonald's shakes. He's on an 1,800-mile test drive on Route 66 from Los Angeles to St. Louis, and when he reaches his destination, he's got to make the biggest call of his career. For three years, Suzuki's engineering team in Toyota City has been developing the prototype car he's driving, and now, as its chief engineer, he must decide if the Lexus LS400 is truly road-ready. There's a lot riding on his decision. Toyota needs a luxury sedan to stop its wealthiest customers from upgrading to BMWs and Mercedes. It also wants to sell a high-profit luxury car to offset the rising value of the yen against the dollar. That's why Toyota sunk a billion dollars into this project, and Suzuki knows there's no room for error if Lexus is going to challenge the established prestige brands. Honda's Acura proved it could be done. Acura now outsells both BMW and Mercedes. But Toyota's plan isn't to undercut the Germans like Acura did. No, it wants to make a car so good people will bypass a Mercedes altogether just to buy one. But if the Lexus fails to turn heads, Toyota could forever be confined to the low-profit world of mass-market economy cars. Suzuki sucks up some more milkshake and notices the drooping fuel gauge. He better fill up before setting off for Albuquerque. He pulls into a nearby gas station, steps out into the baking heat, and starts filling up. As he stares across the shimmering desert landscape, a man in a cowboy hat emerges from the gas station. The man heads towards his pickup, then stops to look at Suzuki's car. It looks familiar, like one of those expensive German cars, but the nameplate and badge are covered with black masking tape. He calls out to Suzuki. Hey, buddy, what make a car you got there? Suzuki smiles. It's reassuring that his Lexus is getting noticed. But it's still under wraps right now, so he better stop this guy taking too much interest. It's a prototype. A prototype? Huh, of what? The new Mercedes. Ah, that's what I thought. The man leaves satisfied, but in a sense, Suzuki isn't lying. Because if all goes to plan, Lexus will become the new Mercedes. By the time he gets to St. Louis, Suzuki's convinced the LS400's ready. After six years in development, Lexus is primed for ignition. But it's going to be a bumpy start. LinkedIn Jobs isn't just another job board. With a vast network of more than a billion professionals, it's the best place to hire. You'll get access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And if that sounds overwhelming, look, don't worry, it's not. LinkedIn Jobs makes the process easy and intuitive. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. If you're like me, hiring the best candidates for a job can often be about who you know, the connections you make. 
My favorite thing about LinkedIn Jobs is the ability to screen for the experience and qualities you're looking for and reach out directly, not waiting for the right person to come in over the transom, sifting through emails. It's actually fun to find people with the skills and backgrounds you need this way through LinkedIn Jobs. Often, you're making connections that help your business along the way. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash businesswars. You can thank me later. That's linkedin.com slash businesswars to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Late November 1989, Lexus headquarters, Torrance, California. Richard Chitty nearly spills his mug of coffee as one of the customer service team bursts into his office. There's panic on her face. Richard, we have got a major problem. It's been three months since the first Lexuses went on sale, and so far, everything's been dreamy. There are now more than 8,000 LS400s on the road. Customer satisfaction scores are through the roof. Even the launch of Nissan's luxury brand, Infinity, hasn't spoiled the party. Everybody's happy, and that makes Chitty's life as Lexus's head of customer satisfaction easy. But the honeymoon's about to end. The customer service rep shuts the door. I just got off the phone with a dealer in San Diego, and he took this customer on a test drive in an LS400, and they go out on the freeway. The customer, he puts on the cruise control, right? And it's all good. But then they take the exit ramp off the freeway, and the customer presses the brake to disengage the cruise control, and then like, uh-oh, nothing happens. And, and they're going into the ramp at 55. Chitty's face falls. Uh, they crashed? Oh, no. The dealer somehow managed to reach over and cancel the cruise control manually, just in time. But it was close. Thank God. Chitty sinks into his chair. There are thousands of Lexuses driving around that could have the same potentially deadly fault. He thinks of Audi and how its brand got trashed after allegations of unintended acceleration in its 5,000 models. Back in 1985, Audi was hot stuff. Today... Its reputation seems damaged beyond repair. Chitty knows that Lexus could now share that fate. The rules are clear. Lexus has five days to assess the problem before it must tell the authorities about it and how it plans to fix it. He immediately dispatches a team of engineers to San Diego to examine the vehicle involved in the incident. They find the offending part and express ship it to Japan. When the part reaches Toyota City, the Lexus engineering team races to identify the problem and a fix. But as they do, new complaints about deformed taillights and losses of electrical power begin to trickle in. With the company's billion-dollar move into luxury motors in danger, Toyota's 76-year-old chairman, Aiji Toyota, steps in. He orders a recall of every Lexus ever made so they can be fixed. Customers are sent apologetic letters and dealers call to say sorry and offer to loan them cars to minimize the inconvenience. The swift, no-expense-spared action works. Lexus's reputation stays intact, and it'll soon be topping consumer reports as the most reliable luxury car. In 1990, Lexus shoots ahead of Nissan's Infiniti with 63,000 vehicles sold. It's enough to put Lexus just behind BMW and Mercedes, but Acura remains far out in front, with nearly 140,000 cars sold. 
1991, the U.S. slips into recession and sales of BMWs and Mercedes slide. But thanks to its lower price tag, Lexus's sales keep rising. By 1993, Lexus is on Acura's tail. Acura is now just 9,000 cars ahead. But the struggle to dominate the premium class of cars is now just one of an increasing number of battlefronts opening up between Honda and Toyota. By the mid-90s, they're fighting to win over 20-something drivers in Japan, slugging it out over the booming market for minivans, and jostling for dominance in the new compact SUV market spawned by Toyota's RAV4. And Toyota's about to open another front with a project that it hopes will puncture Honda's innovator image. November 1994, Toyota City, Japan. In Toyota's R&D center, team leader Takeshi Uchiyamada straightens his back as he builds towards the finale of his presentation. In conclusion, the threat from global warming means fuel efficiency will be of critical importance to the 21st century car. Therefore, I and my team intend to design a four-seat economy car with 50% better gas mileage than today's cars. Uchiyamada smiles. He's a 48-year-old engineer with a reputation as a dreamer, and he's proud of the dream he's just presented. But wringing 50% more out of a gasoline engine is fiendishly difficult to do with a technology that people have been fine-tuning for the past 100 years. Uchiyamada looks at the lone man listening to his presentation, his 60-year-old boss, Akihiro Wada, and he's frowning. Uchiyamada, this is just another economy car. You were supposed to come up with a small car that could define the future. If fuel efficiency is the dream, be bolder. Promise me twice the mileage of today's Corolla. Uchiyamada blinks in shock. But the only way to even attempt that would be to create a gasoline-electric hybrid. Well, then make a hybrid. Uchiyamada's eyes widen. Hybrids are still the stuff of concept cars and science fiction. We looked at hybrid technology and rejected it. The batteries are weak. The range in electric mode would be unacceptably low. The hardware is large, expensive, heavy. It won't fit in a compact. We would need to make a bigger car. No, your brief is to develop a small car. That is not changing. You will make it a hybrid and have a prototype ready to display at next year's Tokyo Auto Show. Yukiyamada's jaw drops. But the show's only 11 months away. My team has no experience with hybrid technology, and, and I'm inexperienced too. What you are asking of me and my team, it's, it's outrageous. Wada doesn't blink. Either you make it a hybrid, or I shut down your project. Because without that car, we have no use for it. Uchiyamada leaves, shell-shocked. He entered with one plan and left with a totally different one. And he's not even sure his new mission can be done. Uchiyamada and his team work flat out to develop a car that switches between gas and electrical power on the fly to maximize efficiency. They reject the inconvenience of plugging in to charge the batteries. Instead, the batteries will charge on the move by soaking up the energy generated by braking and spare engine power. In October 1995, their concept car debuts at the Tokyo Auto Show as the Prius. But the promise of 70 miles per gallon attracts little attention. 
The only people interested in Toyota's hybrid are engineers from rival companies. But when they lift up the hood, they discover the Prius is all smoke and mirrors. The car on the show floor doesn't even have batteries inside. Instead, there's an electric capacitor dressed up to look like a battery. But a month later, the Prius team wire up those batteries and prepare to charge into an electric future. November 1995, at Toyota's technical center in the foothills of Mount Fuji. Uchi Yamada and the Prius team watch from the edge of the track as a test driver climbs inside the prototype. After a frantic year, the Prius is ready for its first road test. Until now, they've had to rely on complicated computer simulations, but now they will get to see their work in motion. Uchiyamata holds his breath as the driver inside the Prius gives a double thumbs up and reaches for the starter button. The Prius is designed to start in electric mode. The gasoline engine will only kick in when the car is doing around 15 miles per hour. One of the team gasps as the driver pulls his hand away from the starter button. Wow, it's totally silent, just like we thought. But then they see the driver start jabbing the starter button repeatedly. The Prius isn't silent because it's in electric mode. It's silent because it doesn't work. Uchiyamata watches dismayed as the unresponsive Prius is towed back to the workshop. The car doesn't work. His team still has enormous technological hurdles to overcome, and his bosses are demanding that the Prius launch in late 1998. It could be worse. Actually, it is. Because 150 miles to the east... Honda's engineers are dusting off their abandoned studies of hybrid technology. Both Japanese car makers want to dominate green technology. But Honda has plans to cut Toyota off and establish itself as the new king of the road. On the next episode, Toyota and Honda's competition gets an electric jolt. A floor mat becomes a killer and GM loses its crown. From Wondery, this is Episode 3 of Toyota vs. Honda for Business Wars. A quick note about recreations you've been hearing. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said. Those scenes are dramatizations, but they're based on historical research. If you'd like to check out more about the creation of Lexus, we recommend Lexus The Relentless Pursuit by Chester Dawson. And for more about Toyota and GM's joint venture, we recommend Comeback by Paul Ingracia and Joseph White. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Voice acting by Art Butler and Michelle Philippi. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Ryan Potesta. Our producer is Dave Schilling. Our managing producers are Tanja Thigpen and Matt Gant. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondery. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like sure. to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker. 
lied. Like a liar. Like a liar. And if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal, or you love to hop in the Wayback Machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes, you should tune in to our podcast, Morbid. Follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to episodes early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 